let's get into it. Landry Bobo, coach that many people know on the blog. So it's good to get the face and audio to kind of your coaching philosophy here. I've got a bunch of different questions that I've been running through with some different people. Welcome back to the podcast. You've been on it before, but let's, uh, we'll do, this will be the, the formal coaching intro, we'll say. All right. All right. He's a man of few words. Let's jump into, I love this question because it is relatively simple, or I want to say it's basic, but it gets asked very often. And it's in relation to heart rate versus power. And first one, when coaching athletes for endurance rides, zone two, do you go by heart rate, power, both, something else? Kind of how do you view those rides? Um, Usually I, I like to keep an eye on both. And I mean, if your zones are accurate, you, they should line up most of the time, but I always like to think of power as a good guide for just making sure that you're keeping in a zone, especially if you have really undulating terrain, um, like in North Carolina, where you're always going up and down, it really keeps you accountable to stay within your zone, um, to make sure you're not going up, up into tempo, but you know, there's so many different variables to where I could be riding at straight zone two one day and my heart rate's completely controlled. And then another day, for whatever reason, whether I'm dehydrated or I just came out of a rest week or I'm coming back from an off-season break and my heart rate's just super high, you know, that's when you start to go by heart rate. Um, and I, I think heart rate kind of gets the final say because that's sh- that's showing what's going on in your actual body. So I think it's, it's too easy. It's easy to get focused on what the power is saying, but there's so many different variables going on within your body that that's why it's really important to keep an eye on heart rate. And whenever there's an athlete that doesn't wear a heart rate monitor, I think they're missing out on a lot of the training because that's also a great way you can track progress. Um, but I think how would they track progress with heart rate? Um, typically you would just see like a lot lower heart rate, um, for the same power. So mm-hmm. with one guy, a cyclocross guy I've been coaching, we've really been working on his base fitness cause he's looking at getting into some gravel, um, and starting out, he was doing 200 Watts at 140 beats per minute. And now he's down to like 127. Um, and that's just a really good indicator of increased aerobic base, increased fat burning, you know, increased aerobic threshold, um, greater efficiency, all the things that we're after with zone two training Um, versus if you don't wear a heart monitor, we don't have any of that data. So I can't know if it's actually working. Um, And also you can't know whether or not you're riding too hard because it's really a good way to see, to make sure your zones are accurate. And a lot of times, especially when somebody's coming back from a break or they've been sick or whatever, I'll tell them like, do this ride by heart rate. Don't your power is going to be way lower than it was before the off season. So do, do this ride by heart rate. Um, and I know that's what I do coming back from the off season is, you know, my power might be 30 or 40 Watts lower than what it was in July. Um, and so you kind of have to, to gauge by heart rate really. So I think, power is good to make sure that you're keeping it steady, which is a big thing. Um, 
and you know you're not letting not surging too much not getting that variability index too high but i think heart rate is kind of the judge of where you should be within that power range and then you brought up a really good point of for undulating and very undulating terrain let's say like climbing mountains if people don't know north carolina north carolina rides you could do you could climb 2000 feet in an hour so it's just when he says up and down it is up and down and you had made the comment of you know you don't want to be surging and riding in tempo to keep your average power up do you then tell athletes like hey your average power is going to be lower than a zone two like high zone two that's okay. Follow the heart rate. Like, you know, don't kill yourself going downhill. Is that like an expectation you set with them? So they're not, or I guess I should ask the question, how do you keep them out of going to tempo to keep the average power up? Cause you know, if you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I think there's like an ego aspect to it is that people want their, I'm, I kind of fall into this trap. People want their average power to look really good when they mm-hmm. go out and ride. Cause they want to show that they're making progress or they want to like flex on their friends or something like that. Just don't worry about the average power. Because and just go by heart rate. Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, so I like to think of it as heart rate is kind of the independent variable. That's the thing that you're trying to keep within zone and power. The power is going to be whatever it's going to be, but just keep it steady. Mm-hmm. Like it should be somewhere within your zone too. It's just going to vary depending on, the day or the terrain or the weather um like it's really hot right Um, so yeah (laughs) well social media has changed that it's very interesting because even i've caught myself doing it being like "Ooh, that that power sucks today i've ever put on start like low zone too just so people know it's like (laughs) it's not it's it's not my normal zone too guys uh no it's it's yeah strava instagram has changed some things Uh, okay heart rate versus power for vo2 max training or rpe or something else or a combination of all yes (laughs) (laughs) um i think it's important to especially with a lot of the super threshold work that we do to really focus on rpe and heart rate because sometimes somebody's zones could be a little bit too low and they might not actually be pushing themselves enough so they might think I have to, you give them a VO2 max workout and they think I have to stick to this power. That's what coach tells me to do. But the design of this workout is you should be getting close to your limit. You shouldn't be like destroyed, but you, this should be a close to maximal effort. And so if you can go harder, then go harder. And that's why I like to make intervals that are, that are actually RP based where I say, do the highest power that you can consistently repeat for all of these efforts. Or if it's a more complex workout, like an over under workout, I'll just tell them if you can do more than this, then go for it. Um, But then I conversely, I also would tell them if your power is not there, then just do what you can and just, I mean, do the most power you're able on that day, but don't just give up because you don't, you can't hit the power numbers unless you're, sick or something is wrong there's just some days where you're not feeling it Mm -hmm. cool in terms of kind of back to the zone two high zone two low zone two or hey it's a range for a reason do you have one do you lean one way or the other or does it depend on some 
type of scenario? Yeah. Um, I kind of like, I mean, there's a range, but I kind of like the middle <laughs> just because it's, it's safe. I don't like to see people trying to peg the top end of the zone because that's a little bit risky because um, we want to stay once you cross over that line once you cross above your aerobic threshold that first threshold we're de- we're completely defeating the purpose of the session we are starting to utilize more carbs than fat it's going to be a lot more taxing than it needs to be and we're not training what we're intending to train so i like to keep it kind of my magic number would be like around 65 percent of ftp for the most part just because it's hard enough to where you're going to be getting some good gains out of it, but it's not, we're not hitting that limit to where we might be crossing over. Mm-hmm. But then of course you also have to look at the terrain as well. So <laughs> in North Carolina, there's certain climbs where I'm going to have to be up, up towards like 75% of FTP when I'm hitting 10% grades. Um, and then Obviously, you have to look at the level of the athlete as well. If they live in a really hilly place, um, you know, and they might not be as fit as somebody else, it might be really hard for them to keep it in zone two, um, which is just kind of the way it is. But and it also depends on the time of year as well. So I think during base season, I like to ride maybe a little bit higher in zone two especially if you're more limited for time because we can do more work we can burn more calories and train the fatigue resistance to a greater extent um if somebody has if somebody's able to do more high volume training then i think it's better to go a little bit easier but as you approach the season and the build phase i i like polarizing it more so we want to make sure that you're really fresh heading into those high intensity sessions so the goal isn't really to do a ton of work or a ton of calories. The goal is to really get the most out of the the high intensity. So at that point, I like to back down the endurance um, to more lower end of zone two so that you're more fresh to hit those high intensity sessions. And I mean, you're still going to get tons of benefit from that. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's you made a good point about the tempo early on and i think for newer listeners i i want to second that big time because tempo is fun it's fast fun and it gets to a point where there are definitely athletes as they get fitter they're like oh well i rode kind of more tempo today and i still feel good and you do it again you do it again. it's not like a couple tempo sessions are going to wreck things but i have definitely seen in myself and in i have two athletes right now that i'm they're relatively newer and working with me and i'm and i'm begging them to stop making these endurance rides, tempo rides. And I've seen over like an eight to 12 week period where it really flattens people out if they do too much tempo. And two of these guys kind of bought into it and are more doing actual endurance rides. And now their harder rides are harder and setting PRs. And it's it, it intuitively to me, it's like, yeah, it's not really that big of a difference, but it really matters. It really matters. So I definitely want to second that it, it it's, still shocks me at the difference in how much harder you can go when you really keep the easy days easy. Uh, Moving on from that, do you focus on heart rate decoupling at all? And this will be the last kind of heart rate question. Yeah, I definitely take a look at that. Um, It's definitely a good measure of your durability and your endurance um, and kind of where your base fitness is at. There's so many factors though. Yeah. Especially once it gets hot out, it's, super hard to keep that 
low. And so it's going to be hard to compare your Hari decoupling when it's 80 degrees out versus what it was when it was 50 degrees out. Mm -hmm. Um, but providing that we have similar conditions. So especially when somebody's doing a ride on the trainer in the winter, it's a really good measure to see where, how their endurance is. And I mean, if you can do four hours at 65% of FTP with no drift, that's a really good sign that, I mean, first of all, your base fitness is in a really good place, but also that you're, you're handling it well. I mean, it's probably not even taxing you that much if, if you're not having any cardiac drift with that. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a good sign that your base fitness is where it needs to be. And you made another a good point that jumped out to me of when you're talking about the difference in time of the year, there was a podcast a few years ago where guys were talking, it was a world tour athlete. And he was like, you know, we all set these crazy PRs in January, February numbers that we're not going to hit in July, but our repeatability increases. Like we couldn't go race the tour in January. And I've definitely had people that have said, you know, Hey, I'm hitting 300 Watts in January, but now I'm stuck at like 285. It's like, well, let's look at the scenario. And sometimes it's just this, you know, they're building their fitness. They crank out one crazy effort and that was it. But now they're doing, instead of 300 once, they're doing 285 multiple times for whatever the duration is. And it's, it's tricky. Like if you're, when I was trying to do the self-coaching, like you're in the, you're in the forest and you're just looking at these singular workouts and it's like, you can trick yourself and when you're not in the time of year makes a huge difference in so many aspects. It sounds so basic, but really got to zoom out. It's important. Let's talk about VO two max training. Um, what do you, how do you decide what type of VO two max workouts for different type of athletes? Um, yeah. So a lot of times, especially early in the build phase, I like to just in general for most athletes, well, I like to gradually ramp it up. So I want to choose workouts that are going to be more doable, that are not going to be as challenging when we start out in January. And then we gradually progress to harder and harder workouts. Um, So I like a lot of kind of like the lower end lactate clearance type workouts um, or something like that early in January. And they can kind of build confidence from that and get some of those initial adaptations. And then you've adapted to that. That feels easy. Cool. Let's make it a little bit harder. Um, I'm a really big fan of intervals that just focus on kind of hitting everything. So something like a five by five is a really good workout, especially for race specificity. But you can't really bank quite as much time at high intensity. And those can also get really mentally taxing um, and physically taxing. So I like to do workouts that are still super threshold and are still going to get your VO2 max up, but that are going to be a little bit less demanding. Um, So I like to do one that's four or it's three by four minutes with one minute of rest in between at like 105% of FTP. And you end up And you do that three times. So you end up banking like 40 minutes above FTP, but mentally it's so much more manageable um, because you only have these like four minute blocks and you're not completely maxed out with every single one. Um, But it depends on the athlete. So I have a guy who he has a huge aerobic base, but he really has a hard time with the higher power efforts. And he feels like he, he told me, 
that he's never felt what it's like to be actually maxed out aerobically because his because muscularly he feels like he can't push the the power needed to actually get it there mm. um so with him we've been doing we've been doing um some five minute intervals with a ton of rest in between so that he can hit those really high power values um, to train the muscular aspect or kind of the 30 15s where you can bank a ton of time at uh, 120% of FTP or something like that. Um, but I think for, for most athletes, especially starting out, I really like the workouts that would accumulate 30 plus minutes above FTP, um, and that, and sustaining that power. So a lot of the over under workouts we have, the rook intervals <laughs> once you get ready for good luck ready. everybody if you get those those are those suck <laughs> oh you got to give it another shot i was i did that on the trainer a few weeks ago and i was i, I almost that. i almost called you out i was like all right brendan when are you gonna when are you gonna do this one again <laughs> <laughs> i should do it again i'm i'm feeling getting been getting spicy so that'll come back in the rotation one of these days when you let me get clarity on when you had said something that works on everything, are you referring to everything in terms of like the VO2 max realm of like power, high heart rate, or what did you mean by everything? Yeah. So when we look at some of the high intensity adaptations, we want workouts that are going to, first of all, train, train lactate clearance. So get above your FTP, go below and train your body to clear it. And then also workouts that are going to accumulate those high levels of lactate because lactate actually is a signaling molecule for aerobic adaptation. So um, if we can have workouts that really accumulate a lot of lactate with aerobic-based intervals, that's actually going to really help build the aerobic engine. So I like workouts where you are sustaining high power outputs for a long time to really have that signaling versus if you have like a four by five, you're not going to be having as much time at that high power. And then I think the other thing is the muscular endurance aspect. So just being able to sustain a high power for a really long time. Um, and then third thing, yeah, like VO two max. So hitting that VO two max, um, training the cardiac output, um, and the plasma volume and all that stuff. So if we're going to do two high intensity workouts per week and, and our goal is just aerobic adaptations, why don't you pick a workout that's going to train everything? Because we could do, we could do a five by five workout that might be really good for training VO2 max to some extent, but maybe we're not training the muscular endurance to the same point, And we might not be actually spending quite as much time above FTP. Um, or we could choose maybe an FTP workout. Sure, we're, we're training the muscular endurance, but we're not really hitting the VO2 max or training the lactate clearance as much. So I like workouts, extended workouts, where kind of you can train all three. So over-unders are great for that because if it's hard enough, you can train, you can train your VO2 max. You can the interval could be 15 minutes long. So you could really be training the muscular endurance um, and you can be training a lactate clearance all, all at once. Um, so that's why I really like those kinds of 
those styles of intervals. Yeah, I need to get back on. I have um I kind of died on my third one a couple days ago yesterday. These days are all blending together. And yeah, that's a really good session. It's always surprising how high the heart rate can get. And it's also fun. It's motivating to be ripping down the road. And um and and I, I do still like five by fives a lot. Just the constant power. There's to me also it's mental. It's like you get totally. through the first one's like, gosh, I have to do four more of these. But then when race day comes, I'm not as worried or intimidated by stronger people there that I'm like, oh, this is going to be insanely hard today. Okay. Well, I know I've done really hard workouts. At least I'm putting my best foot forward. So, yeah, well, there's, so there is like the mental toughness standpoint, which I, that's actually a reason why you would select one workout over another is you need to mentally get used to doing an effort like this. So we, when you give an, a workout to an athlete, you also need to think about not only the physical load, but also the mental load. So yeah. I know some athletes, they love to suffer. <laughs> Other athletes, they don't really like the intervals as much. And so with one guy, I know that the year before he burnt out in like June because he was just tired of doing these hard workouts. And so mm-hmm. he, he emailed me and he's like, Hey man, why aren't we doing these five by five VO two max workouts? Like we were doing last year. And I was like, well, last year we did these really hard intervals and you ended up burning out by June because you were just, you weren't overtrained, but you were just kind of mentally tired of it. And so I was just like, I would rather us do workouts that are maybe slightly less mentally taxing, but be able to do them the whole year. So sometimes though you want to choose a workout because it is mentally hard. So going out and like going for KOMs, for example, is a great way to train mental toughness because you know you're going to be basically murdering yourself just to get through that or via two max workouts as well um so you kind of have to balance what's best for adaptations but then also what's best for kind of the race specificity and kind of the mental component as well so i think early on in the build phase it's good to select workouts that are just solely focused on adaptations And then as you get closer to your races, think about what are my race demands physically, but also mentally, and then kind of tailor, tailor that fitness that you've built already through the build, through the early build phase into that race specificity. So I like to think of it as in, in the base season, we're building the base of that pyramid as wide as possible. Early build phase, we want to do kind of the workouts that I talked about workouts that are going to hit all, all of those components to, to build that peak. And then as you get closer to your races, we want to use that peak with like race specific training. Awesome. Do you look at the relation of FTP to VO two max power at all? This is kind of like everyone's sort of split on this one that I've asked in order to dictate training. If so, how do you, what do you like glean from that? So you mean like how high somebody's VO2 max power is relative to their FTP? Yes, exactly. Yeah, um, that's definitely something that I look at. In fact, one athlete that I was talking to has has a very low VO2 max relative to his FTP, but he's like a diesel. Um, But we know that that's a weakness for him and that's something to need to work on. So 
we've definitely been hammering the the higher power efforts to really try to get that up. And I think it's also can actually be an indicator of potential overtraining or just like kind of um, somebody who's done a lot of sweet spot. So I think a lot of people who need to polarize their training more have a much smaller uh, VO2 max relative to their FTP. So that's also just an indicator that we need to polarize your training more and we need to spend more time in zone two and we need to make your hard workouts a lot harder. Cool. Awesome. Let's get into strength training, strength training. Yes or no? Of course. Of course. Okay. So who? Yes. Anyone knows it for everybody? No, it's not for everybody. Ooh, who is okay. Who is it for? And who is it not for? Um, <laughs> well, for one, we have to look at the time that people have. So there's just some people that it's just not going to happen. They just, they, whether they're not willing to, or they don't have time, it's just, you know, yeah. no, it's, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, you've said it, those people out there, they're listening. They're like, yeah, that's me. It's like, I'm just not doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's just the way it is. Not everybody can, not everybody can do it, but I also think there are some people, especially when we have athletes that come to cycling later on in life and they might have a strength background or came from another sport that it's just not really a, a weakness, but, and, but they are, they are so in need of aerobic training mm -hmm. that we really need to focus more on that, especially if they're time crunched. It's like, we could do some gym work, but I just don't think that it's worth the juice is worth the squeeze for somebody who already has a gym background. So if you have the guy who's been riding since he was 15 and never been in the gym, that's going to be worth it to us, even if we have to reduce the volume a little bit. But the guy who's been lifting since he was 15 and is totally ripped, but doesn't have the aerobic engine can benefit more from really channeling his energy into, into the bike. Um, but for most people, I, I do recommend it. Um, I mean, if you, if you have unlimited time, then I would say everybody should do it, but most people don't. So, yeah. What is the difference sort of between base versus race? And if you want to get super specific, you'd throw like build phases in there, but you know, are they lifting the same amount all the time? Or are they doing heavy versus light? We're take that one wherever you want, but uh, that's always a huge question. How has it changed? You're going from larger base miles into race season. Um, yeah. With strength training? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, so if you're looking to get strong in the gym, you definitely want to take advantage of early base. So let's say you start training in November. I think November and December is really the time when you want to focus on just getting as strong as possible. And your vol or your intensity on the bike should be pretty low. And the way I like to think of it is gym sessions, hard gym sessions are high intensity sessions. And regardless of whether it's a bike session or whether it's a gym session, those are high intensity sessions. So you shouldn't be doing two high intensity sessions in the gym and two high intensity sessions on the bike. That's four high intensity sessions. You're going to get overtrained with that. So in the early base, those are intense sessions. The gym sessions are our intense sessions. That's not to say we're not doing any high intensity, 
but it's just going to look a little bit different. And that's kind of where I like to prescribe a lot of low cadence training, which maybe you'd want to touch on that. Um, because it's really compatible with building strength in the gym. But then as you transition to the build phase, that's when you'd want to scale it more down to maintenance because it's, it's unrealistic to continue to build strength and also reach peak fitness on the bike is just going to be, it's going to be too much. And so in terms me, of like free, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Go, no, I was going to ask you if you could just get into when, when you're talking about, you use the term like a maintenance lifting, what would be hit the November, December high intensity lift session? Um, obviously it's going to vary, but like, is it three reps, five reps, lots of reps? And then what would maintenance be? Yeah. Um, so my background was kind of, my undergrad was actually in strength and conditioning. So um, a lot of, most of the things that I learned when I was in school was you want to do more higher volume lifting kind of early base season and then transition that to lower volume lifting later on. So kind of eight to 10 rep range early on, especially if somebody's new to lifting, I don't I actually wouldn't even go beyond that in their first year. Um, but just getting the movements down, getting those structural adaptations down, because if you just jump in the gym and you just start doing five by five, you're going to injure yourself. And there are adaptations that that need to take place with the lower weight before you progress to the higher weight. So even your ligaments and your tendons are not adapted to handling that higher weight. And so it's no different than cycling training. You need to build that base. It's just going to look a little bit different, but at the same time, if you haven't lifted, if, if you haven't even lifted in nine months and you're just getting back into the gym, which you should be doing maintenance lifting, but if you haven't, you're going to see gains just from doing eight to 10 reps, like three to three by three sets of eight to 10 reps. You're going to see gains from that. So tap that out and then progress from there. You want to do the minimal effective dose. Mm -hmm. um, and that's key. We, that is key. Minimal effective dose. Sorry to cut you off, but that is something that I have been personally trying to hone in on of. It's easy to go overboard in the gym. It's fun. Like once you get into it, it's like, ah, oh, maybe I'll do one more set. It's like, do the least amount to get the most gain. I just try to always remind myself of that because I've screwed that up before. And I would say, I would also add to your point of if you haven't lifted before, when he said, don't go heavyweight, go low weight or start no weight. I mean, people that do air squats who haven't squatted are, are sore as hell the yeah. next day. <laughs> you know, uh, adaptation phases. If somebody doesn't know what that means, email one of us and we'll help you through understand that a little bit more. Like it is very easy. On paper, it sounds very easy. Go in a gym and do it. And you'll be glad you spent the time before you put weight on the bar. It's you don't want to injure yourself lifting. That is not the point. And then, sorry, so I cut you off there. And then going to maintenance would be, so that's more heavy. And let's assume someone's been lifting. We'll take like the noob out of it. They've been lifting. They've done the higher volume in the base phase. So then when they're getting towards racing, they're, are they lifting heavier? And then what's the frequency? So to clarify, like I would say during the base season, your goal is to get stronger. So that's where we look at the progressive overload. Once you get to like, the true build phase towards racing is just about maintenance. So you, you shouldn't be increasing weight at that point. Okay. Um, so again, back to like the minimal effective dose, one heavier lift per week should be enough to maintain most, if not all of your strength. 
And then I've actually found it really beneficial to do a second lift, um, a lighter lift later on in the week. And that can even be done from home. And I think I've found that it actually helps to maintain strength gains so that when you go into the gym, if you go to the gym once a week on Wednesday, when you get back in the gym, you don't feel like you haven't lifted in a week and you just, mm -hmm. you kind of have the the movement patterns down. You don't feel like you get stale because I've tried, I've tried lifting just once a week. And when you, if you haven't lifted in a week and you get back in the gym, you just feel kind of stale. Yeah. But I've also found that it actually minimizes soreness a lot. So like just random template of what I think works really well for maintenance lifting during the season is one day per week of heavier lifting. Um, but you should not be progressing past, you should not be progressing past the highest weight that you lifted during the base season. And okay. then one lighter session, maybe on the weekend. And you can even just do that from home. Like just do, if you have some dumbbells, do some goblet squats with 40 pounds or something like that. And then with that heavier session, you're also going to be doing less volume. So you want to maintain the intensity, but you want to do less volume. You want to be tapping out the weight because you're really trying to maintain those neural adaptations. You're trying to maintain that signal between your muscles and your brain, but you basically just want to kind of tickle the heavy weights and then like shut it down. So do um, kind of like a pyramid. So do 10 reps, six reps, or do 10 reps, eight reps, five reps, and then maybe do two sets at kind of like your max weight and then shut it down. Um, and then I think also in terms of programming, it's good to do it before a rest day so that you're not compromising any of your, your bike sessions because um, the bike is a priority at that point and the lifting is secondary. And I think um, even if you lose 10% of your strength, but you're able to train with high quality on the bike, then that's, it's, you're not going to, if I, if I'm squatting in December, 150 pounds, and then all of a sudden in July, I can only squat 140 pounds. It's not going to affect my cycling like no. at all. So you're better off being conservative um, and, and just not worrying about it. And as long as you're lifting consistently, even if you have a race and you haven't lifted in two weeks at some, at some point in the year, like you're still going to maintain most of the strength that you built and you're not going to notice a significant difference but if you stop lifting altogether then you then you are going to lose Dude, those yeah it, the noticeable difference in people that haven't lifted i don't think well they're not going to relate to this but like when you are smashing in at ftp or higher and you just it, i don't even know how to describe it people when it's like this one guy George, he's like, there's just another gear. He's like, I feel like a monster when I come out from lifting a ton. And it is just the power that you can feel delivering through the pedals. If I only do once a week, I do feel that decreases. And so I've been trying to do the twice a week, second second uh, lighter lift. And for someone that wants to do it at home, like Landry saying, it's amazing what you can do with a 30 or 40 or 50 pound kettlebell uh, if you don't have dumbbells and you don't want to invest or don't have a space for like a whole gym setup, you don't need that. You can get by with so much with goblet squats and renegade rows. And there's just so many exercises you can do to stay sharp so that when you go back and lift heavy, you're ready to do it. And I'm excited to, I was getting into the trap of trying to keep all the highest weight possible 
And it's just not realistic when I'm trying to do really hard interval sessions or hard four hour rides or whatever. So it's let the numbers come down. And I've, I really think, you know, if you're at body weight and squatting, there's benefit from that as the highest when you're in a maintenance phase, like, you know, I think that multiplier is going to come down over time. And as you said before, the minimal dose for the most effect on your cycling. We're not weightlifters. Okay. A couple of miscellaneous questions. What do you see as the biggest signs from an athlete of fatigue or fitness? Well, first of all, I would actually say the comments that they put in training peaks. Um, mm-hmm. If they just say they're feeling tired all the time or they're just not motivated. Um, that's why I'm so big on comments. Like I can't tell everything from the data. I, I need to have that subjective piece as well. Um, I need to know how it felt, but I think just the, the quality of the intensity goes down, um, acutely. I think if somebody can't reach peak heart rate values, then that's often a, a sign of like under fueling. Or if somebody tells me like, man, I just feel like I couldn't get on top of the pedals today. I feel like I couldn't, uh, just push the power. I didn't feel like I was tapped out cardio wise. I mean, that's, that is like a surefire sign that you were just not carved up going into it. Mm. Um, but I don't know if like, we're talking overtraining. I mean, it no, was I, just... think that's, I mean, that was good. Oh, well, you could go into overtraining if you want, but that's, I think that's beneficial for people to hear. Like your communication is huge. Everybody thinks there's sometimes going to be like magic from WKO. And it's like, no, tell someone I had an athlete that one time had said, I don't want to tell you when I'm tired. I feel like I'm not doing things right then. I'm like, no that is not i feel like i should have explained that you know like communicate everything how you feel it doesn't mean you're failing it just means you're tired and we need to back off a little bit but sorry what were you gonna say about overtraining well to to your point like so much of coaching is just anecdotal experience of us as cyclists but also just knowing how things should feel or how things shouldn't feel like I've made all the mistakes already. So I know, I know what it's when something is wrong and what it feels like when something is wrong. So if you tell me I just didn't have any energy today, well, then I know that you were, that you are not carved up going into it because I've done it a million times. So, um, I'm sorry. What was your question? Uh, you were going down an overtraining thread, but I think we're good. Yeah. Okay. So what, what do you see as signs of like fitness when somebody's, and it might be what you said before, but like when somebody's starting to ride well, or they're going into race as well, is there anything that you look for or see, or maybe it's their comments of like, how, you know, how they're feeling when they're riding? Yeah. Um, so first of all, their subjective comments, usually they'll just say that a workout felt easy or they, they, this didn't, this workout didn't feel hard at all. So I'll give them Um, a workout that I've done myself, I test out all of my workouts first. And so I know if your zones are accurate, this should feel really hard. And so if you, if you hit the numbers and you say it felt easy, then it's like, okay, you've obviously gotten a little bit stronger since the last time you did that workout, or even just looking at their numbers. I, if I know that you probably shouldn't be able to do more than 110% of FTP on this workout, but you do a hundred, almost 120 then it's then I know that you've definitely seen some fitness increases. Yeah. 
it's a good sign that your FTP has gone up and let's go race. <laughs> what uh what are some favorite sessions that you like to prescribe? I really like the uh kind of like the over under one that's got like a four minute it's like a four minute hard start. I kind of got it from you, but I made it a little bit harder than the one you had. But it's like I I took that from Tom Bell. Shout out to Tom. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one. It's like four minute hard start. And then you do like over under like one minute, one minute up, one minute down. And that's one of those workouts that kind of trains a little bit of everything. Oh, you made it one minute up, one minute down. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I did it. I did it. And I didn't think it was hard enough. So I wanted to make it harder. So, but that's one of those ones that kind of trains everything. And it's also like pretty fun. So, and Mm -hmm. I I also like the, the kind of the lactate clearance one that you have where it's like the 30 second surge. Um, and then it's like two and a half minutes of rest, or there's one that's like a little bit longer. I kind of modified it. So I have one that's the 30 second surge, two and a half minutes at tempo. And then I had one that was a minute and a half. And then I had one that was a minute and I kind of like progressing those to make them harder and harder. Um, and if somebody doesn't know what like a lactate clearance workout is, a lot of times it's, you have an under portion in tempo, low threshold, you could even, it's not really tech. I mean, by definition, by studies, it wouldn't be lactate clearance, but like threshold bursts where you're riding at threshold and then burst from there. I think those are great race prep. And especially if you're going to be racing faster people, if you're a cat three, you're going to be racing cat one and twos. Those are really good to do. So the whole point is create lactate, clear lactate. Um, so yeah, it's not as complicated as it might sound if you're just listening to this in uh, audio podcast. And sorry, what were you going to say after that? It doesn't matter, but <laughs> but uh, to to the lactate clearance workouts, I think slash over unders is they give you so much more benefit than just doing like steady state threshold. I think um, because you can have a normalized. I actually did this today, but you can you can do a lactate clearance se- session, and your normalized power is where it would be with an FTP session, but you're getting more out of it because you're you're training the lactate clearance to a greater extent. You're accumulating that lactate in the blood, and then you're training your body to clear it. Um, and it's such an important thing to train because you talk about. I know you talk about this all the time, but like how how your lactate threshold is is related to how much lactate you produce, and then how much lactate you can clear. So if I start to produce this much lactate and I can only clear clear this much, that's when I hit the wall. That's when I start to fatigue. And so we we are training we are reducing our lactate production by building the aerobic engine. So if we can make more mitochondria, we are going to be able to consume more oxygen. We will not produce as much lactate. So with the base miles, we are, we are working this side of the equation. And with the lactate clearance, we're working this side of the equation. Mm-hmm. So we are reducing our reliance. We are reducing our production of lactate with consistent riding and base miles. And then we are training the lactate clearance with the lactate clearance. Um, it is really interesting when the normalized power is like right up at someone's FTP, maybe a little bit below it on uh, some over-unders. And I, I think I just, it's interesting to me, especially for anyone that's doing road races, gravel, crit, the applicability to how much more comfortable I am riding above threshold since really focusing on these since maybe 2020 is when I would put out 
and this isn't a flex, these are just, I'm a big person. So if my FTP is a little bit above 400, so if I used to do 460, 470, I'd be like, hey, beware, like you're you're burning it right now. Now that's when I'm at like 500. I'm like, yo, this is not gonna last forever. Like, and you know, those little surges, I'm talking like, even if you're in a group ride and it's like a 30 second surge, you're not gonna explode from that. But too many of those over a 25 minute period, you're gonna be effed. And so just the ability to ride well above threshold has massively increased. And it's been just really surprising. And, I'm, and I have no, I'm not knocking constant power. I mean, that's how I was coached for many, many years. You can get stronger that way. I just, as Landry's saying, you can get even stronger by doing other workouts. And if somebody, you know, I don't know, it, it, there's pluses and minuses to everything, but I really would encourage people to put those in their training repertoire. Uh, yeah. just... I mean, I, I'm kind of in the same boat when I, when I was first being coached by, when I first started riding, when I was coached like 10 years ago, that's all we did was so many FTP intervals. And, <laughs> like I'm naturally more of a diesel type rider. And so just training that more and more and more really made me like one dimensional. So I was really good at these long hill climbs, but like, I just had no ability to go over. I could hold this forever. And if it was like Mount Evans hill climb, which is two hours long, I would just smoke everybody. Mm -hmm. But when we got to the road race, it was, I was much more disadvantaged. Um, and I think kind of the lactate clearance workouts are, are a newer thing with, with the advent of power meters. So the way people used to train, you didn't have, you didn't have power meters. And so I think we can really make more targeted workouts to train these systems that we didn't have before. Um, and just anecdotally, <laughs> I, when I stock pros on Strava, I do not see them going out and doing three by 20 minute FTP intervals. So much of their work is above threshold. Um, it, it's very rare that I see steady state workouts. I think too, I would echo the dieselness. And one thing that over-unders, I, I really do believe they will help you level up your game in terms of, I got stronger riding at constant power, but when I was racing much faster people, if I went to road nationals for cat ones, if I raced a gravel race and you have just people just much better than me, those were the races where I just couldn't seem to get to the next spot. It was like, I could not get on that podium and still working to try and do that. But I've come so much closer since dialing in training that's above threshold and not at threshold. It's so we won't kill that uh, any longer. Okay. Yeah. What excites you about the future of training, racing, coaching, anything out there that's caught your eye? I don't know. I think something that excites me is just how many more people are getting into cycling because we just have so many different ways for people to to find what they enjoy. So we now have gravel racing. We have we still have road racing. We have even Zwift now. There's just so many more ways for people to enjoy cycling. And I mean, obviously, that's good for our business, but it's just great to see people getting on bikes i mean i think if everybody in the entire world rode a bike i mean the, the world would be a better place so um and i think since especially since coronavirus i think there's been a lot of people who have kind of picked up cycling as well so 
I think from COVID, it's been a lot of people that have moved away from the office all the time or have realized that their business still runs, even if they go for a two-hour ride on a Wednesday. It's like, wait a minute, what have I been missing? I need to do this a little bit more. And that's been really exciting to have some of those conversations where athletes have just straight up said, I want to ride my bike more. Like I did that through COVID. I want to make that happen. So if anybody's in those shoes, do it. Make that change if you can. It's definitely worthwhile. What? Let's talk about nutrition. What about on the bike? This land Landry's had some posts that he's got me on his nutrition plan. Let's talk about on the bike fueling. What are you putting? I have you bike? on my nutrition plan? What does that mean? Sugar water and oh. uh, well, not you're not the maple syrup, but um, what are you putting in the bottles and? Then any nutrition tips for off the bike? Let's do on the bike, off the bike. So general, like in terms of quantity, I think you will notice a huge difference if you get to 90 grams of carbs per hour, 90 to 120 grams of carbs per hour. For which sessions, which rides? Yeah, so I think anything, if, it, if it's just an hour, if you if it's like your weekday ride, say you ride for an hour on weekdays, you probably you don't really need much of anything, honestly. But and anything, especially like if it's an hour and a half and you've got like some hard intervals, I would even recommend like 90 grams of carbs per hour on that, um, just because you're going to be burning through a lot of glycogen on that ride. And if you replace that, if you replace that glycogen on the ride, you're going to recover so much better. Um but especially with longer rides, the, the longer and the more intense a ride, the more carbs you need. So I know the 90 to 120 grams is a good range. If it's really, really long, I would go higher on the 120. If it's really, really intense, I would go higher on the 120. So for example, if I do a four hour endurance, I might do 90. If I do four hours with a ton of intervals, I would do like 120. Um, and then if it's, I mean, I've, I've done long and intense. I've gone even higher than 120. Um, just because, Yeah, if anybody like, thinks he's crazy, when I have a long and intense ride, I'm going to do like 150. And Yeah, like and like listen to your body. Like there have been times where like I'm just like super – I get hungry on the bike and it's like I feel like I need to take on some calories. And typically if it's a really intense session, like I feel like I need to, to have more than that. So – and then the, the let me research. let me I want to chime in on that because to the robotic athletes out there that wanted to be well I'm 94.3 grams per hour but then people will be they'll put in the comments I was eating my carbs I have my 93.4 that always works and man we got to the gas station I bought x y and z and it's like okay so wasn't that your body telling you that you could probably take on a little bit more maybe you should challenge and be open to your you're 93.4 and maybe it is 107.2 and so you know like listen to what your body is telling you it is so important every scientific thing about cycling has not been proven yet <laughs> so listen to your body and if it's telling you it needs cheeseburgers okay it might be wrong there but like for the most part your body will tell you a lot of things oh, sorry yeah. continue um quantity what do you put in what do you recommend in the bottles sugar water sugar water why um 
Well, for one, it's super easy. Like I, when I first started fueling my rides better, which we could talk about that, about the difference between when I underfueled versus fueling, because I, I actually like to explain that to people because people don't realize just how much of a difference it makes for your training and your recovery. But sorry, to back to your question, sugar water makes it so much easier to get in the amount of carbs that you need. So when I first started trying to hit that 90 grams per hour, it was basically impossible through solid food. Um, like super hard, but with sugar water, it's so easy. I mean, I can hit like 120 grams per hour, like no problem. And also it's super cheap. So for someone like me who rides a lot, I'm not going to drop $500 a month on beta fuel or something like that when I can just get the same thing from sugar water. But um, someone's going to say, but I heard that you need to have two different carb sources. So how does this work with sugar water? Yeah. So sugar water is sucrose, which is literally fructose and glucose. So it's exactly what your body, it's the exact ratio. So if you look at the back of um, scratch super fuel or something, I, it's um, maltodextrin and then like fructose, fructose, which is the exact yeah. same thing. And sugar water is like nature's gift to humanity. It is like it is our body has was meant to like run on that when we're exercising and it's it's all natural it's it's it comes from nature and it's it's just sugar it's pure so energy I, so i will say i thought landry was crazy when you started talking about this and so i tried it because i am trying to always get the best deal for similar to lifting get the most out of spending the least amount of money because i just ride so much i can't be buying tubs for 39 dollars whatever and it is incredible. Oh, the next question, though, that it comes is what about electrolytes? Yeah. Um, so I have just done straight salt, um, which has been working. Apparently, you need like potassium. I'm not an expert on this. Apparently, you also need like potassium or something. But I know no. I know that sodium is the most important and that's what I've been doing for over a year now. And I, I mean, I haven't seen it used. So it has been shown in other studies that you actually don't need that. And so I was under that in not impersonation. I was under that, whatever. I thought that was true. And when I did the podcast with Ted King, he was like, I don't, you know, I've never been on a ride and been missing my potassium chloride or whatever it might be. So I started looking into it a little bit more. And there is a study that shows that sodium is the king of the electrolytes and even flow formulas they put out uh different references for this that that prove that it's not even necessary and they only put sodium in and so that's what i that's what i thought because i actually got a question from one of my athletes he was like sure what should i be putting potassium in my bottles and to my knowledge like just from my biology 1000 class sodium is what allows is what um allows your cells to stay hydrated so the water will follow the sodium into the cell and i think it pushes potassium out of the cell so like it's the sodium potassium pump thing so i don't even yeah i don't think you even need no and, I, and so, my yeah, last comment salt. on that that i learned that i did not realize was that one gram of salt is not one gram of sodium one gram of salt is 400 milligrams of sodium so if you're trying to hit 400 milligrams you need more salt I did not realize that was how, I didn't know that was the equation. So I was under 
sodiumizing my drinks for a little while. Do you measure your sodium? I do. I have a scale here that I do for like the 70 gram. I put 70 grams of sugar in my bottle and then I do here in Florida because it's freaking hot. I put 1.5 grams of salt per bottle and then I bring some quick fit little uh, hydration caps that have it's basically I take three. So it's an hour. So I'll have three. I'll go out with three bottles and then for hour four and five. I'll take three caps each time, which is 600 milligrams of sodium. But yeah, the 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 um, scale has been helpful. I might not be doing enough sodium. I, I've never waited. I just like put salt in my bottle. So. <laughs> Dude, yeah. Start, try, uh, well, those little measuring teaspoons aren't always accurate, but I would get a cheap scale off Amazon. And I think mine was maybe 30 bucks. And it's been, I've used it a ton for like coffee and whatever. Uh yeah, it's worth it. So what about any, what do you think of like these low fiber diets or fasted or carb restricted training and either of those things that you're into? Um, I would say that I'm not into carb restricted training Um, just for 99% of athletes. I don't think it really makes any sense if you're most athletes can see way more gains from being carved up than they can from doing like carb restricted training um because i think it's just the tendency to underfuel our training because we're burning so many calories that a people don't realize how much they actually need or b which i think is the most common or b there's still this old school mindset of like trying to limit your carb intake um if you're trying to win the tour de France and you're trying to get that last 1%, then I'm sure that there's some benefit to it. But most people that need to work on their nutrition will see the most gains from eating more carbs <laughs> rather than restricting them. And there's, there's a million ways to mess up doing like low carb training mm -hmm. um, that it's like not even worth it. And also it sounds horrible to me because I like my carbs. So <laughs> fair enough. What did, uh, we're kind of at an hour. So I think the last question is, do we miss anything or any topic or any other comments for the listeners that you want to bring up? Go check out our blogs. Yeah. I will kudos. Landry has written some awesome articles, some really unique topics. They definitely can help you get faster. They're obviously free. Hit us up with questions. Landry, thank you for doing this. And we will talk to you on the next podcast.